Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 48, and we're joined by a very special guest. His name is Norm Finkelstein, and he's the author of lots of books, um, Beyond Huspa, um, The Holocaust Industry. His newest book we're going to discuss today, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancer Culture, and Academic Freedom. Is um, That's going to be the meat of the discussion. But um, a lot of my followers probably know Professor Finkelstein, but I just want to say welcome to the show and thanks for accepting our invitation. Well, thank you very much, even though I have to correct you. My name is Norman X. Finkelstein. That is true. That's true. I should have gotten that straight before we got onto the air. <laughs> Norman X from now on. I wonder where that came from. But <laughs> no, <laughs> we have, um, I'm so looking forward to this discussion because um, I do follow things from afar. Um, I'm a book nerd. I love to read things. Um, I study books for a living um, as a professor. Like, I mean, I was in the literature program at UT Knoxville. So this book had um, elevated interest only because I, I followed Norm's trajectory, just um, especially the last 20 years um, politically and also the issues in academia that he faced. And, um, and I can relate to that, not on um, a personal level regarding like being denied employment and, and tenure and stuff, but as far as my mindset going in, because I kind of know the political forces at work um, in this glass ceiling that we call academia. So we may talk about that some before we get into the book. But again, I want to give out an advertisement before we start and just say thanks to all my listeners and uh, subscribers and people who follow the podcast version and the video version on YouTube. Uh, we have a third of our audience outside of the United States, and we've reached up to 40 different countries. And so that was the point of the forum, was to really make this an international community forum and talk about things outside of the Red-Blue Alliance when it comes to politics and really delve into culture and politics and get all types of people on, activists, professors, and the whole nine yards. And again, we want to say thank you again, Professor Finkelstein, for coming on to the show. And I guess my first question for you would be, what was the inspiration behind um, this, this newest book of yours? I would say <clears throat> there was a political inspiration and there was a personal curiosity. The political inspiration was quite straightforward. It was a very noticeable phenomenon during the Bernie Sanders two ca uh, campaigns in the Democratic Party for the presidential nomination. And the, the noticeable phenomenon, the notable phenomenon was that each time, as it were, the moment of truth came, here was a class-based movement with, you would call, let's call it radical reformist, a radical reformist agenda. Bernie Sanders wasn't talking about socialism, 
in the real sense or the great big communist tomorrow, uh, he was basically talking about restoring some of the programs which gave working people a fair chance in the United States. Uh, <clears throat> and working people who are right now really hurting. And when we speak about working people, I don't want to use categories which might sound uh, obsolete or antiquated, the working class, the proletariat. Just broadly speaking, about 80% of our country is hurting right now. 20% are doing beyond belief, actually. Uh, but 80% are genuinely hurting. And the Bernie, the Bernie Sanders platform uh, offered the possibility of real, uh, a real a substantive improvement in the lives of people. Well, uh, this was not a um, quixotic campaign by Bernie Sanders. Very quickly, it mushroomed into something real, something substantial. It was a real phenomenon. Up until, for example, 2020, we'll leave 2016 aside, right up until South Carolina, it looked very much like Bernie was going to win. Uh, the Democratic Party apparatchiks like James Carvel or Chris Matthews, they were imploding on air, on air in real time at the prospect of a Bernie victory in the Democratic campaign. I mentioned that you're nodding your head in agreement. I think most people have forgotten how close Bernie came. Even in, in South Carolina, <clears throat> in the last week, several of the polls showed that Bernie could win South Carolina. Had he won, to quote that song from the 1960s, there would have been no stopping him now. Because right after that came, as you recall, Super Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And if he won South Carolina, everybody knew Super Tuesday and then it's over for Biden uh, and anybody else. So I won't go through what happened in South Carolina right now. What I do want to point out is, both in 2016 and 2020, it was very notable that all the high priests and high priestesses of identity politics and the main precincts, let's say journalistic precincts of identity politics, such as the New York Times and MSNBC, the high priests, the high priestesses, the precincts, the journalistic precincts or media precincts of woke, of woke politics, they all coalesced, combined, collaborated, formed this juggernaut to stop Bernie, to stop that class-based movement. Now, these were the people who we were told were the cutting edge of woke politics, be it a Kimberly Crenshaw, an Angela Davis, a Ta-Nehisi Coates, in the MSNBC, a Joy Reid, 
or in mainstream uh, television, a Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> All of these people are the super woke, super chill, super cool exemplars of identity politics. And to the last, they were using their forums to, to attack Bernie. Whoopi Goldberg, when she had, when Bernie was on The View, when are you going to get out of this race already? Mm -hmm. Joy Reid, Ms. Woke Politics. She brings on a body language reader to prove that Bernie is a congenital liar. Angela Davis, who is supposed to be a communist, you would think that she would be energized by Bernie's campaign. She uses her, her platform to say, well, Bernie's weak on the race question. Oh, yeah. Biden was very strong on the race question. Very strong on the race question. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Bernie's weak on reparations. But Elizabeth Warren, she's good on reparations. So, of course, that's the only issue because Atlantic Magazine decided that reparations was the main black issue. So he very subtly endorses Elizabeth Warren and uses his forum to trash Bernie. So that to me, I should say the, um, your generation obviously is very different than my own. In my generation, the newspaper of record was the New York Times. The New York Times commanded all the journalistic authority in the United States. Nothing was even close to the Times. So in my day, now I'm talking about, let's say, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, okay? In my day, the Times, a typical moderate liberal paper, it was very, by current standards, by current standards, it was very anti-woke. What do I mean by that? So back then, I give a few examples in my book, several um, books came out. These, bo these books come out periodically. This one, were in my, the main one in my generation was called The Bell Curve. And the gist of The Bell Curve, yes, it has very elaborate tables and charts and appendices and all the rest, but everybody understood the core. The core was Black people, when it came to intelligence, were genetically inferior to white people. That was the core of The Bell Curve. The New York Times gave it a very positive review a very positive review, okay? They reviewed another book by a Canadian who claimed that penis size and brain, uh, brain power are inversely proportional. In other words, the bigger dick you have, the stupider you are, the smaller dick you are, the smarter you are. So of course, the male readers of the New York Times found that very comforting, that piece of knowledge. Okay, the Times gave that a positive review. 
When Malcolm X was killed in 1965, the Times wrote he got what he deserved. That was, that was the editorial. So now, everything that I just told you, it's unthinkable in the Times. The Times is now super woke. It's a super woke publication. It was very striking that the very same paper, <clears throat> which is <clears throat> super woke, super support of the George Floyd demonstrations, magazine article to Angela Davis, loves all of these woke people. So it's super woke, but you know what? It was also super anti-Bernie, super anti-Bernie. They were going mad. For the first few months of the campaign, he was whited out. And then when he couldn't be stopped, they did everything in their power to undermine and discredit his campaign. So as a political phenomenon, I, I found it very, let's just say, peculiar. Why are all these woke people who are supposed to be so super radical, so cutting edge, they all got an X somewhere in their name? Oh, it's true. Today I opened up the New York Times. There's an article about the Montana legislature, Zoe Zephyr, who was expelled because of uh, some she was um, because of something having to do with a, a bill bearing on tr um, medical treatments for trans children. Okay, so the Times refers to one character in this this thing happening in Montana as the person M X period, and then the person's name, comma, who goes by the pronouns they them. I'm thinking to myself, what is MX? I mean, why does everything have to have an X now? In my day, X-Men, a pornographic movie, <laughs> triple X meant triple fun. Now, everything has an X, Latin X. Why would you want, why would you want an ethnic group to have the same name as a porn site. I don't no, I don't get it. <laughs> and, then, and then they say, Hama, whose pronouns are they, them. Well, guess what, New York Times? I really don't care. I, I don't care what your pronouns are. As I've said in the book, my pronouns happen to be fuck slash you. So, <laughs> so, so are you going to now say in the New York Times, Norman X. Finkelstein, comma, whose pronouns are, <laughs> it's just insane. In any event, it was a point of interest to me how it came to pass that all of these folks who are pawning themselves off or are being celebrated as radical, 
were now coalescing to stop what by tradition, because tradition always emphasized class, the haves and the have-nots, the 1% and the 99%. We are the 99%. That's what, that's what radicalism from the, you know, the last 150 years, actually probably all of human history, it's always been about the haves and the have-nots. How did it come to pass that this new radicalism was not only not engaged in the issue of class, but was actually serving as a juggernaut to stop a class-based movement. So that was the impetus for the book. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up with Bernie because I was going to talk about him some and um, definitely within the context of the book, it seemed like you were juxtaposing the class-based politics of Bernie Sanders versus um, what you describe as woke or identity politics, um, I guess, indoctrination, influence, infiltration, whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess my question would be, hearing this, what would you give my audience as far as like, what would be a Norman Finkelstein definition of woke in a paragraph? Um, like, what does that mean to you? Like, because I hear this word a lot. And it's, for me, it's honestly, it seems like it's more of a recent occurrence. Um, I know that the word had a different context at one point, I think, but I've heard it so much, like, in, in the past two or three years, I'd say. I don't think I've ever heard it. I don't use it personally, but I also don't use a lot of other words, too, because I think they're very much... Um, um, I won't say that they're, they're, they're tactics. Is, that's what I'll call them. I think they're tactics to to um, to signify certain um, positions. And I think your position is very clear. Um, and I agree with your overall position that um, what you're describing is woke, but I, I guess I want my audience to know what you mean by woke. That's a fair question. And it's come up a lot in recent months because of, uh, well, basically it came up in a, in a tragic way, when Brianna Joy Gray questioned one of her guests uh, who had written a book largely devoted to wokeness, mm. and Brianna Joy Gray said, can we just have clarity on the term? And the author very badly stumbled to the point of, one could say, self-humiliation in her inability to answer the question. Um, if you ask me, first of all, I don't care about the quote-unquote intellectual origins of identity politics or wokeness, because I don't think it has any intellectual content, this movement. So some people will go back and say, oh, it's all because of Foucault, or it's all because of Derrida, and they mention all of these uh, allegedly important thinkers. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't interest me. Uh, what I'm interested in is wokeness as a political phenomenon. And as a political phenomenon, I would say it has three major characteristics and one you might call minor characteristic. Because I want to engage you, you are from a different side of the country. You did read the book. 
And at least you told me in the pre-interview you had a hearty laugh from it. So that to me is always the most important consideration. Um, I want to hear from you. So I'm going to just give you a shorthand version of what I mean by wokeness, and then we can talk. Number one, wokeness is a strategy by the Democratic Party to replace its traditional working class base ever since Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal, the Democratic Party has been known as the party of the working class. And it, in as late as 1984, which I know for you is early, but for me, I have memories of 84. Um, when Mario Cuomo, he was the governor of New York at the time, the father of Andrew Cuomo, uh, he gave this very stirring speech in defense of the working class at the Democratic Party convention. And that was, uh, I mean, I even knew people on the left, on the Marxist left, uh, who found that speech very inspirational. That was what the Democratic Party was back then. It's, it's, it's a base. The base of the Democratic Party was the trade union movement. Mm -hmm. The trade unions were very powerful. You have no recollection of it, but there was a time when the United Oil Auto Workers, the United Steel Workers, the United Mine Workers, I mean, those uh, uh, United Teachers Union, those were formidable forces. You know, that was big industry, which means they could make the country or they could grind the country to a stop. Mm -hmm. That was power. Well, uh, the, uh, the union movement, it disintegrated, it died. Jobs move, moved overseas and these powerful unions were shrunk, radically shrunk in size. And in addition to that, for various cultural movements, cultural reasons, uh, there was a defection of workers from the Democratic Party. And now there was a vacuum. Now every party needs a base. The base isn't everyone that votes for it, but it's that hard core. When still, you know, when you got an um, endorsement from the Steelworkers Union, it means every steelworker is going to vote for the candidate who's endorsed. Same thing with the mine workers, same thing with the um, all the unions. And I, it's hard for me to convey now um, because it's so long ago how powerful they were. And the Democratic Party, to fill that of this, decided to weaponize identity politics and try to replace its working class base with an identity politics base. And you see it in its kind of crude, vulgar form with President Biden. So mm -hmm. he appoints a black woman as his vice presidential candidate, a black woman to the Supreme Court, a black woman lesbian as his press secretary. It's, it's kind of funny because you say you want to be in academia. So, or yes, you're aspiring to academia. So in academia, you have all of these affirmative action requirements, right? 
So if a department has to hire and it's two candidates, a black man and a black woman, who are they going to always choose? They'll choose, I'll tell you, I'll tell, they'll always choose the black woman. You know why? They can check two boxes. You know, for the affirmative action, we now have another black person in our faculty, box checked. And now we have an another black woman, a woman in our faculty. So we can check the woman box. So it's called an academic life, it's called a twofer. You get two affirmative action checks with one person. And now Biden, he, he, he uh, hires a black woman lesbian for his press secretary, you know why? He could check three boxes with one person, black woman lesbian, check, check, check. That's the affirmative, that's the identity politics game. Unfortunately, it doesn't work all that perfectly because you think by having a black woman, you get the black vote and the woman vote. But after a while, you start alienating black men because how comes we don't get any checks? You know, because they figure why get one check with a black man when you can get two checks with a black woman? Because, you know, women are a minority group and identity politics. You get my point. Mm -hmm. So that's what Biden is attempting to do. He's also a bit on the old fashioned side. So he's trying to still get part of the white working class. And that's why he gave that State of the Union address, trying to appeal to the working class vote. You will recall maybe that during the 2020 campaign of all of the candidates, the two who wouldn't get on board for black reparations, mm -hmm. Bernie and Biden. And that was the signal that Bernie and Biden were still shooting for the white working class. Whereas Hillary Clinton, you remember, the basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. She deposited the whole white working class into the basket of deplorables. That was her way of writing them all off. And then she lost the key states. I guess she lost Michigan and Pennsylvania, where mm -hmm. the work, white working class was significant. Um, so that's the first aspect of identity, of uh, woke politics. The Ref the reconstituting uh, of the Democratic Party as a dem as a identity politics uh, uh, base. Now, let me be clear. Up until recently, minorities in general, as they were called back then, minorities in general, there they found their home in the Democratic Party. So it wasn't just a white working class party. Um, most of the civil most not all but most of the civil rights leaders and women activists 
uh, they veered to the Democratic Party, but it was primarily the working class party. Identity politics was a subordinate role. And you'll even remember, I think, again, you won't remember, but you probably will know that, uh, say, uh, Martin Luther King, his father, as he called him, Daddy King, he was a staunch Republican. Mm-hmm. He gave the benediction at the Republican National Convention. So back then, it wasn't yet a solidly, the Democratic Party wasn't yet the uh, safe space for African Americans. There was still a contingent that was Republican, as you can imagine, going back to Lincoln, mm-hmm. that residue of the Republican Party from the days of Lincoln. Number two, as I've already said, so we don't have to go through it again. Number two, the the woke politics has been uh, uh, weaponized by the Democratic Party to stop any class-based movement at its base. So number one, the Democratic Party has um, uh, reconstituted the Democrat, the party in order to make it an identity politics party. Number two, it's used, it's exploited, it's weaponized identity politics to stop any class-based movement. And so predictably, when the moment of truth came, all of the, as I said, high priests and priestesses of, of uh, woke politics, they performed their function. They did their job, which was to stop Bernie. And number three, the the purpose of one of the no one of the three purposes of identity politics or woke politics is it enables the super rich, it enables the super rich to carry on like they're so radical. And they're so cutting edge, and so, as we called it in my generation, so radical chic, without having to make any sacrifices at all. You know, being a radical, and there was a time when being a radical meant make sacrifices for the cause, up to and including, in the case of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the ultimate sacrifice, your life. What does it mean now? It's all these white liberals, and I mean this literally, I'm not being figurative about it, I'm not being poetic. They hang out with Angela Davis at Martha's Vineyard, and they think they're so radical. Mm-hmm. They go to uh, go to um, lectures by Ibram X. Kendi, and they think they're radical. It's, you know, the expression to have your cake and eat it. Well, guess what? They have their cake and eat it. They don't give up anything. There's no redistribution of wealth. There's no danger. There's no sacrifice. But you're really down with the hood. You're down with the hood because you're hanging out with Angela at Martha's Vineyard. You know, uh, in the 1960s, when the Black Panthers were under government attack, and it was real, it was real, um, there was a very famous musical 
conductor named Leonard Bernstein. And Leonard Bernstein, he had this, what became an infamous soiree in his home in which he invited the Panthers. And it then became the object of a lot of ridicule. That's where the term radical chic originated when this guy, Tom Wolfe, a kind of right-wing journalist, he wrote a, a mocking account of that Leonard Bernstein soiree. So it was, as your generation calls it, it was really cringe. He describes how Leonard Bernstein is giving the high five to the Panthers. You know, it was horrible. It was horrible. But I'll give him this much credit. It took some courage to hold that soiree because the Black Panthers were seriously being targeted. Okay? But what courage does it take now? You're, you told me you're in North Carolina. No, no, you're in Tennessee. So I'll show uh, you. You'll fact check what I'm about to tell you when you get off the air, and then you can tell your viewers whether I'm telling the truth or not. Okay? So I was listening to some of Angela Davis's lectures. Uh, and one of the lectures, I saw she's lecturing in South Carolina, okay? University of South Carolina. I tune it on on YouTube and she's introduced by this Southern belle with a huge shock of blonde hair. And she is the second richest billionaire in South Carolina, okay? The second richest billionaire. And she gives an introduction in which she only half jokingly, half jokingly, talks about how much she and Angela have in common. How much she and Angela have in common. I'm thinking to myself, Wow, things have changed. This Southern white bell billionaire is singing Angela's praises and talking about how much they have in common. I'll tell you, if George Soros had invited me to speak at one of his soirees and he gave a lecture about how much he and I had in common, well, I'll grant that we're both Jewish, but hey, that's where it ends. That's where it ends. If I were Angela, I would think twice about being so grossly used this way as a mascot, as Cornell West described Obama as the mascot of the black mascot of Wall Street, mm -hmm. Angela's become the black, the white mascot of Martha's Vineyard. She has, she has with no, you know how much she charges now for a lecture? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised. Um... She, she charges now for a lecture, $50,000. Mm -hmm. You know, I filled out my income tax for last year. I could bring it on the screen. My income was $35,000 for a year. And Angela charges 
$50,000 plus a round trip first class air ticket, first class has to be first class for one hour. Mm -hmm. hour and that brings me to the last aspect of woke politics woke politics is a bunch of uh, race sex and various other grifters making a mint off of this radical so called radicalism mm -hmm. from ex candy getting 10 million dollars from Jack Dorsey it's Barack Obama and Van Jones getting each a hundred million dollars from Jeff Bezos. It's this complete imbecile, Patrice Coolers. Oh yeah. You know, so-called leader of black, what is a leader of Black Lives Matter? You know what a leader is? She invented a hashtag. That really, but that's literally it. A hashtag. And before you knew it, she bought four homes. She was asked, four homes, Patrice? That's an awful lot of homes you're buying now. She says, I do it for Black people. I do it for Black people. So who would you buy it for? Well, I bought one home for my son. I bought one home for my mother. Oh, she's doing it for Black people. That's like... If the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he buys a palace for each of his hundred wives, he's doing it for the Arab people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so preposterous. It's so obscene when the parents of the kids who were killed, they said, what happened to the money for the grassroots organizations? And then there's the discipline of woke politics. Patrice Coolers came out with another book, you know, her books. They're like the bazooka bubblegum comics of olden days. <laughs> and she's, Amy Goodman has her on, on Democracy Now!, doesn't ask her a question about that. Your housing spree, the charges that the $90 million you collected for Black Lives Matter, where did it go? And then they claim, people like uh, Patrice Coolers, they claim it's all a right-wing conspiracy to <laughs> smirch them. Well, actually, if you go to the web and go to YouTube, 99% of the people attacking them, people like Patrice Coolers, they're black. <laughs> They're black activists calling them grifters. Mm -hmm. Not a right-wing conspiracy. Yes, it's true. The first article appeared in the New York Post. That's true. But after that, go and look. I watched all of the videos. It was all blacks who were attacking her. But for them, it's a right-wing conspiracy. No, it isn't, Patrice. It's, mm -hmm. gr it's grieving parents and angry uh, grassroots organizations who are attacking you because you're a grifter, you know? So that's the other aspect of woke politics. Yeah, the word, um, that's the reason why I don't use it. And um, I don't use it because a lot of it has to do with the group think. Um, I don't want people to think that I 
um, engage in that sort of identity politics um, lens. But um, I think there is a danger of the, the usage of woke personally, because um, I find myself politically homeless currently. And I've been politically homeless, pro honestly, probably close to 15 years. And when you're outside of the confines of the two-party system, which is used, I think both parties personally use identity politics now. Um, it's only natural that when something sticks that the opposition is going to use it too. And and so I see the conservatives, they use woke to sort of, um, I feel like almost attack anything that, that that's related to culture. And, and me teaching culture, I feel like I get mischaracterized mischaracterized at times if people don't delve into the actual content but when they hear me talk they have a conversation they're like no this guy doesn't think like i thought he would but i don't think we should have those notions anyways to me it's still a prejudgment um but i do agree that what you're describing is wokeness like what you described in the book is wokeness um that's not what i have an issue with i have an issue with the potential of that word being weaponized against People like myself, the silent people, I think a lot of the, most of the country is independent. If we're talking about political spectrum, most people are independent. We have to basically buy into this bullshit system. Um, a lot of us don't want to be a part of this system. And that would be another thing reading this book, um, the Bernie Sanders lens. I don't 100%, I can't come all the way there with the Bernie crowd because I was a big Bernie person, but I came to the realization that the first time they screw you over, I understand I give you sympathy. But when they do it again to you, I'm kind of like, are you participating in this um, scam yourself? Like, do you not realize that you're not going to change within the Democratic Party? Because the Democratic Party has already told you what their agenda is. They're not going to let an outsider from within the Democratic Party change it up. Because you said yourself in the 80s, it was like a labor party. And all those people who were part of labor movements, Anybody that they've been able to bring back into the, the Democratic Party at one point who was radical, they have. They've tamed them down. And like you said, I mean, we've been reduced to identity politics. But I think that there is value to identities. But I think that the way it's used in the, pol in the political spectrum, it has become just a, a shit show, personally. Um, as, but but I do think that the overuse of woke can cause another set of issues, um, depending on the context. I think a lot of it is just a context-based thing, and that's what I would say about it. Because I deal with Latin America, for instance, as far as like job hiring, and you mentioned affirmative action earlier. Um, for me, I haven't seen the benefit of it personally. I haven't seen any benefit of it. Um, I'm also competing with people from Latin America. I'm a Latin American specialist. I don't do Afro-American studies. So when people hire me, they hire me strictly from my knowledge of the Caribbean, of Latin America, South America. And I'm competing with other people who are in lit programs. And so we have to know all the writers, regardless of they've been black, indigenous, white, whatever. And so um, I can definitely, I can't really speak to that component of affirmative action that you were referring to earlier. Um, I'm not saying that that's wrong, what you were saying, but I, I'm just saying that that doesn't apply to me and a lot of people that I work with because um, I, I really believe it's based on your skill and what you bring to the table and not based on your, because if that was the case, a lot of us would have jobs now. We wouldn't be on the market looking for jobs um, if we were just getting 
sluts because we were black or women or gay or whatever. Um, but the Bernie Sanders thing stood out in the book, but I'm skeptical because now I'm kind of like, if people keep playing along with the Bernie game, there's never going to be a revolution. There's never going to be any revolutionary output. So I say you have to go outside of the system. We can't keep supporting Democrats at this point. That That's the way I kind of read it. But I know a lot of people disagree with me as far as the strategy. I just don't think you can change the Democratic Party from within like Bernie was trying to do. I think he had good intentions. But I just think at this point, I don't think someone like him would ever have a chance to transform that party. I, I wrote to somebody the other day that Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders had something in common. What they had in common is each of them tapped into and exploited a historical moment. In the case of Barack Obama, after the catastrophe of the Bush-Cheney years, both domestically with the crash of the economy and internationally with the debacle of the Iraq war, the American people were ready for a radical change, or large numbers of the American people were ready for, let's not call it a radical change, a radical break with the past. And people imagined that a black president would be so to speak, the tip of the iceberg of a radical rupture with the past. Namely, if we elect a black president, then it's going to inaugurate spectacular changes in our society of which the black president would be the tip of an iceberg. As it happened, it was just a tip there was no iceberg because if you Barack Obama had no intention whatsoever of radically changing the status quo, his goal was not that he had any political goals because he was a completely apolitical person. He has no interest whatever in politics. But what he intended to do was to bring in the best and the brightest of the ruling elite to stabilize the status quo. So he brought in, if you remember, his cabinet was Larry Summers, mm -hmm. Timothy Geithner, Hillary Clinton, uh, Robert Gates, who was Bush, Bush's Secretary of Defense. He was going to bring in the best and the brightest to stabilize the status quo not to change it. He never had any intention of changing it. He actually never had any intention of doing anything except give speeches because he had no interest in politics, none. He was like you know, George Bush Jr. George Bush Jr. had no interest in politics. He was confident that Cheney and Rumsfeld could run the show, which they did because Cheney and Rumsfeld weren't interested in the limelight. They just wanted the power. Mm -hmm. They had the class interests of their class in mind they just wanted the power who needs the limelight. And Obama, he figured from his years at Harvard Law School and being the editor of the Harvard, uh, uh, Harvard 
law review, he figured all he has to do is give speeches. No, really, he could wing it with speeches and then behind the scenes, the geniuses, for him, the geniuses were always, their two characteristics are very simple. They're white and they're Jewish. If you're white and Jewish, you're a certifiable genius. As uh, Cornell West describes it, uh, Obama would get that chill, that free zone down his spine when he was around these white geniuses. And they, know how, they knew how to massage his ego. <laughs> how smart he is, which he was not. He was not a particularly intelligent person. There's no evidence for that. But they told it to him, and he, you know, he got excited by it. He got excited by it. Now, Bernie capitalized on another moment, namely, people were now hungering for change, but they weren't going to settle anymore for that tip of what they thought would be the iceberg. They wanted to see the iceberg. You know, what are you, what are you selling? And he sold them explicitly a class-based platform which resonated for that 80%. Medicare for all, abolish student tuition, abolish student debt, a Green New Deal, which means investing in public infrastructure and jobs. Uh, and uh, well, those are the, the, the main planks of his, you know, raising the minimum wage, you know, all that stuff. Now, the difference between Bernie and Obama, each capitalized on the moment. What Bernie did, his main legacy is he brought to the surface the possibility that a class-based movement might be able to come to power. If you build a movement on class, it has a reasonable chance. And as we both agreed before the interview began, up until South Carolina, it looked like it was going to happen, of a class-based movement might have a real chance of achieving power, just like the Jerry Corbyn movement in the United Kingdom uh, preceding it. The difference between, in my opinion, Obama and uh, Bernie is, Bernie was sincere. I have no doubt about that. However, when the moment of truth came, between choosing between the Democratic Party and his base, he chose the party. He, once Biden got elected, when he initially endorsed Biden, I gave him a pass because I understood what was going, in my opinion, what was going on. Namely, he did not want to have to bear the burden of being told that because of him, Trump won the election. So he didn't want to have to carry that burden with him. And so he immediately endorsed Biden and went out campaigning for him so that nobody could say if Trump won what Hillary said in 2016, namely it was uh, Bernie's fault. Mm -hmm. 
However, once Biden won, Bernie had two options. One option is to call out his people in mass demonstrations, mass civil disobedience, just like the civil rights movement. It wouldn't have been an easy struggle, but if you get masses of people organized, it's possible to win. Even the bus strike in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, that took a year. <laughs> and that meant, you know, old folks had to get up at 4 a.m. to trudge to work in the winter, you know, to extract even what seems like the tiniest victory. Just you don't have to give up a seat in the bus. It's, it's hard. It's arduous. But it's also winnable. If Bernie had called out his people, that is to say, those tens and tens of thousands who were showing up at his rallies in each major city. In my own city of New York, he had one rally in Manhattan that brought out 25,000 people. That's one borough. The next week, he had a rally in Brooklyn, just literally 10 minutes away on the train. Mm-hmm. But to a different borough, he brought out 26,000 people. If he had brought out those masses of people and told them and organized them and provided leadership to start committing civil disobedience to, for example, abolish the student debt, that's a winnable demand. Mm-hmm. And sitting in at Congress people's offices, sitting in at city halls, it wouldn't have been easy. Because the thing that the ruling classes fear most is not giving a concession because they have so much money, you know, a concession is nothing to them. They fear the most that if they give the concession, that the people will feel energized. We have power. We can extract that concession. So guess what? They're going to ask for more, and then they'll ask for more until they ask for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's hard, hard, hard to extract a concession. I think it could have been one, at least a couple. I think probably Medicare for All could have been one, and abolishing student debt could have been one. I think those were winnable demands, all right? But Bernie had to make a choice. If he started calling out masses of people for civil disobedience, arrest, and the rest, exactly like the civil rights movement, if he had called out masses of people, what would Chuck Schumer say? What would Nancy Pelosi say? What would Joe Biden say? They'd turn to Bernie and say, stop this shit or you're no longer part of us. And Bernie wanted to be able to whisper in Biden's ear. You know, they're close friends personally, they're family friends, the two wives, Bernie's wife and Mm. Biden, go back a long way. He thought by having Biden's ear, he could win a thing here, 
when the thing there, thing there, but he knew if he called on his masses of people to protest and create bedlam from the point of view of the ruling class, it's bedlam, it's revolution, which is what Bernie claimed he supported, revolution, he would lose them. And he was unwilling to lose them. He, first of all, he was a creature of Democratic Party politics, even though he was an independent, he always worked with them and he had a comfortable place in Congress. And it's hard, you know, you know the expression, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Mm -hmm. And he is an older man and has been part of the system for so long. And to suddenly become an outsider and a revolutionary and to then basically lose his place in Congress. He won't be an influential behind the scenes actor. He'll be a pariah. Mm -hmm. he, wasn't, he wasn't willing to risk that. And so he made the choice. And as a result of the choice, his coalition dissolved. A large number of people were left disillusioned and cynical. And he extracted pretty much nothing. Mm -hmm. As people said, the Build Back Better, which wasn't a bad piece of legislation, but each week another plank was whittled and whittled and whittled um, until uh, it was nothing. So that was a choice he made. In my opinion, part of it was constitutional. He wasn't ready to be a revolutionary, which he claimed he was. And part of it was pragmatic. He thought he could accomplish something by having Biden's ear. And if he called out the masses, he would lose that access uh, to the power brokers. You know, you can imagine Nancy Pelosi would have gone mad. Oh, I know. She'd go mad. Could you imagine they start sitting sitting in at her home? <laughs> no, I mean, but that's what a revolution means. I mean, that's what it, that's what the civil rights movement was about. Remember, a large part of Martin Luther King's public life was trying to justify civil disobedience. Uh, because the charge was leveled against Martin Luther King. The charge was, you'll say you want the 14th Amendment, which guarantees what's called equal protection under the law. And you say you want Brown versus Board of Ed, the desegregation law, to be implemented. That's what you want. You want those, the amendment and the Brown decision to be implemented. But then you go ahead and tell your followers to break the law. So they said, you're being a complete hypocrite. You want to implement the law, but then you tell your followers to break the law. Mm -hmm. A large part of his public life, his speeches, was given over to trying to explain the logic there, which is to say, it was not an easy case to make. It's not obvious why that argument is wrong, that King is being a hypocrite. 
So um, it would have been a challenge for Bernie, no doubt, if he starts telling people to break the law, to sit in, commit civil disobedience, and do this and do that, you know, uh, and probably what two thirds of the Democratic Party is going to desert him. Uh, mm -hmm. This happens. I take that back. Probably seven eighths of the Democrats. So it would have been rough going, and he wasn't ready for that. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He's a He's actually a nice guy. That, that's one of the problems. He didn't, he, if you remember during the presidential primary debate, the Democratic primary debate, excuse me, when he's up against Biden. And he says Biden had called for cutting Social Security. And Biden, in front of the national audience, says, That's not true. I never did that. He said, But Joe, you did. You can just go to YouTube. It's all over the place when you gave that speech. And Biden says, no, it's not true. And then Bernie goes, but Joe, you could just say, well, you gave, you wanted to cut Social Security because it was part of another bill. And uh, in order to get the bill passed, you have to agree to cutting. He was giving every out possible to Biden. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't want to go on national TV and say what? You know what, Joe? You're a fucking liar. You've always been a fucking liar. And you'll be a fucking liar till you're great. That's not him. Mm -hmm. That may be me. But <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a question, Norm. How's your time look? I don't want to hold you over too much longer than you don't need to. Yeah, I have to do another interview this afternoon. So... Let's just make, uh, first of all, most people don't watch more than an hour anyway. I mean, unless I'm unless I'm just gripping, which I'm not, I'm too old to grip. Um, so we'll just arrange it another time. We'll continue whenever you feel like it, once a month or so, and you want me to comment on something, then just ring me up and we'll do it. Oh, well, we, we appreciate that because um, I've definitely got some more questions for you, um, no doubt. And um and it's going to be just as fresh, um, which is the beautiful part about it. Um, uh, again, I urge my audience um, to definitely get a purchase of your book. I'm going to link everything into the episode description. Um, so you can look forward to talking to uh, Professor Finkelstein down the road. And um, I'm like I'm like the way that sounds or whatever. I definitely think we need to follow up and, and delve into some other stuff that I had um, as far as this conversation is concerned. Um, as far as my audience is concerned, what's the quickest way and the most effective way in case they had a question for you or had a comment for you? What would be the best way for them to access that? I think the best way is let's just reserve a program where you just take questions from the audience. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. That sounds great. I like that. Um, this is a great episode 48. I can't wait to play it back. And um, a lot of what Norm said, um, I second those views. I only had a few um, areas that I, I think when we have a continuation, we can get into those, um, the whole debate about um, intersectionality and reparations. But um, overall, I think the book was very, um, I would call it humor a collage of humoristic lines as a way to sort of combat the, the cancel culture um, narratives and stuff. Um, I, I I enjoyed it. Like I said, the humor alone is worth um, 
the reason to buy it alone. And if you have a good sense of humor, it's, it's worth buying it, I think. Um, but I think we, I think part of Norm's point, because of this environment we're in, is kind of taking away like um, even the, the lightheartedness of, of humor at times. And people are just so serious when it comes to their team losing and winning in politics and so. I'll just leave it at, one of that is exactly right, that there's a place for humor, uh, even the most dire of circumstances. Um, but part of it was, it was mocking these people. You know, they think they're so hip, so down with the hood, so radical, you know, they're so woke. And so I use the term not in a, uh, a scientific or sociological sense, sense, I use it as a form of mockery, you know, making fun of these people, you woke people. You know, you're too young to remember, but when the whole political correctness started in the 1990s, you know who coined the expression political correctness? It was leftists. It wasn't the right wing thing. We were making fun of that whole culture. Oh, you're so PC. Mm. But it was leftists saying it. They were mocking their own silliness. Mm. So we would call it, oh, that's so PC. And I, I see woke as the same thing. It's a kind of mocking of this idiocy, which is completely, it's devoid of any politics. It's mm -hmm. devoid of anybody. It's just, it's a moneymaker. It's a moneymaker. You know, yeah. it's, I was just thinking today, and then we're going to leave it because I have to go really. Um, this whole thing now with uh, these surgical procedures for young people to change their whatever, this gender, sex, I don't know what they're, I don't even know what those terms mean anymore. But it, it's just really striking to me how your generation and below has become so completely medicalized. You know, in my day, in my day, we had none of these ADHD, AZT, we had none of it. No, I mean, literally, none of it. And you know why these terms originated? Do you know why they originated? So that the pharmaceutical industry could prescribe for each one of those, every kid now, every kid now has a label. Every year, something. You've got to have something, you know. I can't even go through this alphabet soup of labels they attach to every single child. Why? It's a moneymaker for big pharma. Then, in my day, I know these things are going to sound very strange to you because it's like I'm talking about uh, B.C., you know, before Christ. No, I understand. I got parents and stuff. I get it. I've had the okay. conversation. Okay. We had no, there was no such thing called an antidepressant. It didn't exist. If you were depressed, well, the normal thing is, well, most adolescents are depressed. That's part of being an adolescent, you know? So nobody attached much significance to it. Everybody was, when we were in, attended school, everybody had to read Catcher in the Rye by uh, Salinger. And uh, it's about a kid, JC, uh, Holden, Caulfield, Holden Caulfield, and Holland Caulfield is a typical depressed teenager, and he thinks every adult is a phony. That's the big word in the book. Phony, phony, phony. Well, actually, he was right. Every adult is a phony, but let's <laughs> leave that aside. But uh, Holden Caulfield doesn't take antidepressants because they didn't exist back then. If you had a 
depressed, oh, your mother would say, uh, let's say I'd say to my mother, mom, I'm bored, I'm bored. She said, you're bored, knock your head against the wall. I'd say, ma, I'm bored, I'm depressed. She said, you're bored, you're depressed. Lie down on the floor and spit at the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you dealt with depression. Unless you had money. And if you had money, you went to a shrink. Okay? Now, depression has been completely medicalized. And it's another killing for the big pharma, the big pharma, just like the ADG, HTS, whatever, you know. Same thing with depression. And now it's the same thing with this, what they call gender-affirming surgery or whatever. It's another killing. And it's a very sad thing, in my opinion, that Bernie ran this whole campaign attacking what? Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. That was his main target, big pharma. And he was making you alert that these are crooks. But then when it comes to things like this gender-affirming sur surgery, where are the warning bells going off that this is another medicalization of this generation? medicalizing them, always new pharmaceutical products and new surgeries. There's no, there's no um, sensitivity to what's going on. It's horrible what I see what's going on now. This medicalization, you know, young people are depressed. They go to a, what's called a psychopharmacologist, the psychopharmacologist talks to you for 20 minutes and then just prescribes mm. what they call a cocktail. Take this antidepressant and that antidepressant and that, that, that antidepressant. Listen, when I'm taking the subway to work, I sometimes talk to a person next to me for 40 minutes. I don't feel I'm qualified yet to prescribe for them an antidepressant. You understand 20 minutes and you're already prescribing these drugs? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's totally insane what's going on. And I felt the same thing. You know, they want to attack the Montana state legislators because they want to pass a bill against these surgical procedures for young people or gender affirming. I'm for passing that bill. I think leave kids alone. Stop with, stop this already. You start now with them in kindergarten, giving them all of these diagnoses, which require medical interventions. It's very sad what's going on. And very dangerous. Very dangerous. That's how I see it. Okay. Yes. On that note, audience of beautiful people, um, enjoy the rest of your days. And we will talk soon. Episode 49, we have Sarah Walk. And episode 50 will be my dad concluding season two of Kiko's Free Kickers Forum. And um, enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you. <laughs>